pray, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to start in verse 27 of chapter 4 and read partway through the passage. I won't read everything in this section. This section all goes together, but I'll read a section, and then we'll talk about it. So first, uh, chapter 4, verse 27. It says, The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews had met, has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to, to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work. Your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall be by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. God's word from chapters 4 into chapter 5. This whole section fits together in this first point. 
And if you'll notice, it begins with Moses and Aaron going to the elders, going to the people of Israel, and they tell them about God's deliverance. And the people are excited. They worship. They hear about God's concern for them, and, and they see the signs. And they realize God's on the move. And they worship right then. It's a, it's a powerful, poignant moment. And then the end of this section, Moses and Aaron meet with the people again. And that's where they say, God, judge you for what you've done to us in this whole thing you're undertaking. So it's bookended by that. So it fits all together. And it's a story. It's a true story, of course, but a story that helps us understand the ways of God and what he's doing in and through Moses and in and through his people. So it starts out really good. They go in and they meet with the elders and the people of Israel and they do the, the words and the signs, the snake sign and the leprous hand sign. Remember that? We talked about that. Uh, these wonderful signs and, and there's this dramatic triumphal moment, but uh, they, they go from that moment to the next. They, they kind of take it to the next step to go see Moses. I mean, Pharaoh. They go in to see Pharaoh. And Moses goes in really with guns blazing with Pharaoh. I think... He's coming off of this wonderful time with the Israelites and their worship. And he's excited and he's anticipating great things with Pharaoh. And, and he goes in and says, thus says the Lord. So his first thing to Pharaoh is, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now that may seem normal, like he wasn't he told to say that, but actually, no, he wasn't in that way at that time. So if we back up a little bit to chapter 3, verse 18, it's, that's where God tells him what he's supposed to do when he goes in to see Pharaoh for the first time. So we have that to project. And if you read there, God says, And you and the elders of Israel, so you're all supposed to go, shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Very different phrasing for the first thing he's supposed to say. So Moses is actually not saying what he, exactly what he was supposed to say. He comes on strong with, with Pharaoh, and perhaps he's thinking, you know, yeah, man, this is great stuff. I got the signs going. The people are here, and God's going to take down Pharaoh. And I'm going to go in there. So, you know, thus says the Lord God, let my people go. And Moses is waiting, you know, for Pharaoh to say no, and then a, the lightning bolt to strike. Pharaoh, dead Pharaoh, free people, we're on our way. But that's not what happened. He, uh, it doesn't work. And there's a lesson that, for, that Moses is learning in all this. And if you read through the section, uh, just jump ahead to chapter 7, you'll see actually Moses learns a lesson here and, and operates quite differently. So if you jump ahead to chapter 7, verse 2, we can reject this verse. Um, and verse 6, so the end of our section, there's a different approach. And then this approach actually is what Moses follows the rest of all the accounts about the plagues, and really the rest of his ministry, for the most part. So chapter 7, verse 2, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So God is commanding, you, you shall speak what I command you. And then chapter 7, verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And that sort of phraseology is used throughout after this point. But that's not what happens initially. Initially, Moses is kind of freewheeling. And he's not doing just as the Lord says. And, and of course, it doesn't go very well, right? Moses is still struggling with self-reliance, self-sufficiency. 
and, and that self-focus. And self, when you're focused on yourself, you're, you either tend to be self-sufficient or you live in self, self-doubt, right? And that's what we've seen with Moses. Um, self-sufficient, taking things into his own hands, messing up, or I can never do this, I can't do anything. And that's what happens when the focus is on yourself. And so God is trying to cure Moses of this approach here. So it doesn't go well. Moses tries his own way of saying things, goes with guns blazing, and Pharaoh is a great king. He knows how to handle himself in situations like this. And he basically bests Moses and and Aaron in his reply. He pushes back, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? No deal. We're not doing this thing. He pushes back and, and something happens there because Moses still had like the signs that he could have done and so forth. But it's interesting to look at Moses' reply actually through Aaron at this point. Um, the, re- the reply to Pharaoh after he pushes back, he says, the God of Hebrews has met with us. Okay, that's kind of what he was supposed to say in the beginning. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Okay, that's really kind of what he was supposed to say. He was supposed to go with the elders and do that. Right? So he's supposed to say that, and then that was it. And then, though, he adds this, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. Moses, where'd you get that? God never said that he was going to fall on you with pestilence or sword. What's going on? And so he's backpedaling and he's pleading and he's kind of making things up on his own, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And, and so Pharaoh pushes back. He puts them in their place, actually. He says to Moses and Aaron, so this is Moses, right? God's representative. The eternal, infinite God has spoken to Moses. You're my deliverer. You're to go to Pharaoh. You're to do all these things. And Pharaoh pushes back, puts them in their place. He says to him, get back to, get back to work, Moses and Aaron. Get back to your burdens. Get out of here, slave. Go back to your work. And then, of course, Pharaoh goes on to think that this whole thing is really just because they have too much time on their hands. Um, That's why they're thinking of hearing from God and sacrificing to God. And so his response is is to give them labor, more labor, to say no more straw. We're not going to supply the straw because obviously we're supplying the straw and you're kind of, you know, you've got extra time and you're just dreaming up these crazy ideas and your extra time. So no more extra time. I'm just going to work you so you have no more free time, no more of this silly stuff about God calling you to sacrifice in the wilderness. And so that's what he does. And of course, it's, it's unreasonable. And the people, the people are crushed by it. Um, they're, they're crushed because they can't collect the straw and make the bricks and keep their quota up. And so word gets eventually to the Israelite foremen of what's going on. They, they see they, they're being beaten, so they go into Pharaoh, appeal to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, it's, it's basically, it's this Moses and Aaron guy. They came in and said this stuff. And so they come out of his throne room, and Moses and Aaron are there. And now they basically turn on Moses and Aaron. So they go from this wonderful, you know, the signs, and we're ready to go. We're going to go see Pharaoh. We're going to, we're going to you know, call Pharaoh to respond and everything to everything coming unraveled entirely. God lets it fall apart in the way that it does. And of course, he's going to sovereignly orchestrate Pharaoh's hardened heart later. But if you read through the section, there was a way that God wanted Moses and Aaron to go about it that made it clear 
what he was doing, what God was doing. Made it clear what their request was. Comes in with the first request being very gentle. Supposed to be the God of the Hebrews has met with us, would, would like to just go on a three-day journey. There with the elders together, making this appeal. Instead, Moses goes in, guns blazing, gets shut down by Pharaoh. God crushes Moses' expectations because he wants to form Moses into a different sort of leader. And we're going to see that as we go through Exodus, the sort of leader that God creates, the sort of person that God creates. It's interesting to see Moses' response, too. Did you see it there? That he has, uh, they turn on him, and then Moses complains to God. Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Why did you send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Interesting. This is just the very beginning of this thing. And Moses is like, why didn't it work? You've done evil, and you didn't deliver your people at all. I went and I did my thing, and you're not doing your thing. You, this isn't working. And why did you send me? And you can see in, in him his self-focus. It's coming out. And that, that's his whole problem. He went in there with his eyes on himself, not on the Lord, not on the people. And so it gets turned around, and he complains. And, and yet, once again, God graciously confronts him. But God has this way of crushing our expectations to teach us to trust in him alone. This is not just about what he does in Moses' life. He does this in our lives too. And we can be just like Moses. We can be self-focused, either self-sufficient or full of self-doubt. And God comes in to crush our expectations, not because he's mean, not because he's angry, but because he's good. And he wants us to know that he alone is God. He alone brings salvation. He alone leads us and supplies our needs. He's the one we're to put our hope in, not ourselves. I remember a story that author and pastor Paul Tripp tells about his dad. His dad um, was a middle-class guy, had worked hard his whole life, finally saved up enough money to buy his own car. And they all went out and they got the latest and greatest Ford sedan, I don't, Ford Galaxy, whatever it might have been at the time. Got the latest and greatest they could afford and his dad was so proud of it. And they were taking it out on their very first drive before they had settled the insurance coverage. Pulled into a parking lot, was blinded by the sun, and he drove brand new Ford into a telephone pole and totaled it. No one was hurt, but the car was gone. There was nothing left for it. Paul Tripp talks about this, how the midlife dream of his dad was crushed in that. And he uses it just as an illustration of the sorts of things that God will do and allow at times to crush our expectations, to get us so that we don't put our hope in that brand new Ford. I've worked so hard. If I can just get to the place where I can buy a brand new car, then I will have made it. And his dad, who is a believer, um, it's too precious to God for God to allow that to happen. And so God crushes his expectations to turn him to the Lord. This is how our God works. There's a lesson here for all of us. He teaches us to look to him alone and not in our best plans and dreams. So let me ask you, what is your Ford? What is the thing that when you don't get it, you say, Lord, why don't you ever do anything for me? What's the sort of thing that you want to have and feel like you must have in order to somehow be successful? What is your Ford? 
the call here, of course, is to give it up to the Lord. He may not crash it into a pole, but he still wants you more than that thing. He wants you to, to love him and to trust in him more than that thing. So what is that thing? Well, the story continues with Moses. It isn't just that his expectations are crushed. God, in his mercy, confronts him, not only in letting him fail in what he expected to happen, but reminding now him once again of who God is. So in chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, um, God is going to teach Moses once again who he is and what he's like. And we've seen this before, right? In, in this whole section, God keeps on saying, this is who I am. This is, this is what I'm like. So chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, it says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So basically, verse 1, Moses, now you're going to see what I am going to do. I am going to work, and you're going to actually see Pharaoh with a strong hand push you out. He's refusing your request. You're going to actually see him work uh, by sending you out. I am going to work in this way. I will do this to Pharaoh. So God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am the I am. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the I am, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So we're hearing this again, God reiterating. I am the one. I'm doing this thing. I will do this. I will work. I have heard. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the I am, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring them into the land that I swore to give them to, to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. I am the I am. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But, so it's the same thing going on, people rejecting Moses still struggling. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And so Moses is complaining. What's God's answer for Moses? I am. I will. I'm the one doing this thing. I will get it done. Don't put your hope in yourself. I will do it. I remember these promises. I have seen their suffering. I'm acting. I will accomplish it. I want you to speak. And so that he's calling Moses not to look at himself, but to look at God, to look at the I am. And Moses is still struggling, of course, here, but God's giving him a charge. He wants Moses to put his faith in him. He wants his confidence to be in God alone, not himself. And so he's proclaiming who he is and what he will do. He alone brings salvation and deliverance and no other name. No scheming, no strong leadership, nor eloquent words can avail anything apart from God acting himself. And God is the one who will do this. His way, his timing. He's the answer. 
he's the answer for Moses in that moment. And he's calling Moses to get his eyes off of himself and onto God. To not live in self-sufficiency or self-doubt, but to put his trust in God, who alone can do what he's promised to do. So we are to heed the same lesson. We're to see the same thing when we're in that place of complaining to realize that God alone can do these things. He's the one who brings salvation, not us. He's the one who's faithful. He's the one who's zealous. He's the one who's building his kingdom. Jesus is the one who said, I will build my church. Not you. You serve him in the process, but he is the one doing the work. He is the one who has determined that the gospel will go to all the nations. And then the end will come. And yes, he commissions us, but he's the one who holds all authority in heaven and earth, not us. And, and this is in scripture, guys, because we so quickly and subtly and easily just slide back into self-focus. I don't know, maybe it's just me. But as I prepared this this week, that was what I was aware of, just how I do this. And it can happen where I don't even realize it, but after a while I find myself anxious. I find myself tired. I find myself maybe irritated and even overwhelmed. And why? Because I think it's about me. My eyes are on me, and I'm, I'm thinking this is my deal. I have to get it done. I'm just like Moses, going in with guns blazing, thinking it's my own effort that will accomplish it. And God is saying, no. Read Scripture. <laughs> Read this message you're preparing and understand who I am. I'm the one who does it. And you're here with me. I've called you indeed to have a role, but it's not about you. Again, we see this principle throughout Scripture. I thought of the Apostle Peter. Great example, right? I think we all love Peter because we identify with Peter. He's just uh, wears his emotions on his sleeve. You know what he thinks. Um, he's zealous for the Lord. And he, at, at the Last Supper, and he's, Lord, I will, I will never deny you. I'll die. I'd rather die for you. He's, he's zealous and he's depending on himself, not the Lord. He, the right response when the Lord said that you all run away and um, and so forth, would be, oh Lord, please, I don't want to do that. Help me. But that's not what Peter says. I will not. I won't do this. I, I will be faithful. And of course, what happens? Peter is, he denies the Lord, but even the way it happens, it's a servant girl who asks him, aren't you one of them? It's one of the, you know, the, the least threatening people in society. Scares Peter away. And he runs away weeping. He's undone because he depends on himself. And it's just wonderful to watch the whole story and read the whole story with Peter because the Lord restores him in John chapter 21. And part of that restoral, he gets time with Peter. There's another charcoal fire burning at that point. Only two times it's used in, in Scripture, actually. The night that he betrayed the Lord, denied the Lord, there was a charcoal fire. And then by the beach that day, there's a charcoal fire. And the Lord asks Peter, do you love me? And I think what he's doing there, he's saying, Peter... Do you love me? Do you do you, are you one who's going to live in this love that you have for me, I have for you? That needs to be what you focus on, Peter. Living in that relationship and the commission from that, do you love me? Feed my sheep. So your commission to feed my sheep comes out of your relationship with me. So Peter, don't be self-sufficient. Don't be self, full of self-doubt. Look to me and minister out of that. So let me encourage you just to Look at your own life and, and ask those questions. Where are you depending on 
yourself? Where are your eyes on yourself versus God? It's not about you, it's about God, and we're to put our eyes on Him. Finally, chapter 6, verse 14. It starts, these are the heads of their father's houses, and it goes through a genealogy, actually, of Moses and Aaron's families and of the Levites. And you see it there, and we've been seeing all this action, all of a sudden there's a genealogy in the middle of it. And, and you may be thinking, what? What's going on? Why is there a genealogy all of a sudden? What, it's like intermission in the story. Why, why are we doing genealogies all of a sudden? Well, first off, important to understand genealogies have their function in many ways. Part of what's going on here is important for the people of Israel to understand the role of the, the Levitical priesthood. And so we're going to learn about that later. They are the spiritual leaders of Israel. And, and it's important to understand how that came about and, and how the high priest was related to Aaron and so forth. Those things are really important for them. So it's an important issue anyhow to understand the role of the Levites in the Levitical priesthood. But why here? Why now? What's going on? Well, if you read through beyond the genealogy to what happens next, it's really interesting. Because it goes through all that, and then verse 26 of chapter 6, it says, These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. So it's talking about Aaron and Moses' genealogy, and it says, These are the guys. These are the ones to whom the Lord said, Bring these people out. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But, but Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So he's still struggling. And then it says, verse 1 of chapter 7, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will ha harden at Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Then verse 6, which we read earlier, Moses and Aaron did so. And then this, they did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And then from then on, which we'll get into next week, they do just as the Lord commands. God says, say this and do this. They go in and they say this and they do it. And for the most part, Moses' ministry, his leadership is doing that. He's called the meekest man um, because of his meekness, of his dependency on the Lord. He's changed by all this. And so God uses these crushed expectations and then the reminder of who he is. And so this genealogy is really the start of a whole new section in Exodus. That's what's going on. So previous to the genealogy, it's about Moses' failure and God's program to change Moses, to make him dependent on the Lord, and to do it God's way, not his own. To get his eyes off of himself and now to serve the Lord in dependence and obedience. And so the genealogy is like a reboot. This is Moses, and this is the guy who led them out. And now it's, we're going to follow a different storyline with Moses' reactions. Does that make sense, guys? And I encourage you this week to take a look at that. So that's what's going on here. And that's the point here, uh, is just to learn this lesson that Moses has learned. Um, 
that God wants to speak to them and shape their lives and, and work in their ways to, to crush their expectations, to crush self-reliance so that they would turn to the Lord and trust in Him. And they would recognize that it's the Lord who delivers Israel. It's the Lord who cares for His people. It's God who loves them. It's God who's the faithful covenant keeper. It's God who's bringing salvation. It's God who will do this. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that's the reality for us too. God is the one doing it, not us. It doesn't rest on us. We trust in Him. We follow Him. And, and, and we need to avoid the trap of self-focus. It just doesn't work. Yet we do it again and again. Uh, when I first started working in my job out of college, I, I was uh, an engineer, research engineer. I did a lot of public speaking. Um, and I had to speak to uh, Army employees, soldiers and officers, and also executives. And... Um, it was really easy. I don't know about, I think for a lot of us, public speaking can be one of the greatest temptations to think about yourself. It's like the worst thing you can do when you're doing public speaking um, because this is how it works. I wonder what they're thinking about me right now. They probably don't like what I'm saying. And then the next thought is, oh no. And then you know what happens when you do that? You lose your train of thought and you, stop, you start not speaking well. Um, and, and then what happens? You start thinking, they don't, like, they don't like what I'm saying. They don't like me. And it gets worse and worse. You do, you do more poorly, and then they respond, and then it's a downward spiral. And believe me, you can end up in front of people with a, a panic attack. That's where it goes. And thank God I learned pretty early on not to do that. <laughs> it's where I go, and I can tell you stories of that, where I would go naturally to do it. I've had times. Actually, when I first started preaching, I had moments, Saturday night, Sunday morning, when I, especially when I was a guest speaker somewhere in front of a lot of people, panicking and thinking, I mean, just really, I, mean, I don't know if there was a panic attack, but basically it felt like that. Like, oh, no, what am I going to do? <laughs> I don't have to preach. I can't do anything now. And, you know, that can happen. But what, how do you get out of that? Get your eyes off yourself. It's not about me. And I may look stupid. So what? It's not about me. I mean, I don't want to look stupid because I don't want people to be distracted from what I want them to look at. I want them to look at the Lord. It's about God about serving him so if I can get my eyes on him and then my eyes on others it helps it works so much better but that's a picture for life that's a picture for us in all that we do not just public speaking public speaking kind of makes it really poignant but it applies everywhere in all that we do and I would just submit to you if you are struggling with anxiety I don't know the details of your heart I can't say for sure but if you're struggling with anxiety or if you're feeling depressed and overwhelmed it might very well be that your eyes are on yourself, not on God. And I know God uses those things. He can use suffering and those sorts of things to teach you. But he ultimately wants to teach you what he taught Moses. Get your eyes off yourself. It's not about you. Trust me. Lay it all at my feet. Let me use you to whatever level I want. Be satisfied with how I use you on the cross so that he could, in your stead, in a sense, pass that test and be perfect, but also sacrifice himself to pay for your sins and my sins. Our rebellion and our weakness he took to the cross to atone for our sins so we could be forgiven through simple faith in him. And then in union with him, we receive forgiveness. And the way that we experience union with him is simply just turning and trusting, trusting him. 
And in that place, we are joined with him and we're forgiven and we're beloved and we can know his love for us, that infinite love that he has for us in Christ. And so Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. It's no longer about myself. I trusted him. I'm not trying to make it about me and my righteousness and what I can do to impress people. I've given it all to Jesus. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, so this life right now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Paul's way of saying, get your eyes off yourself, onto Jesus, and find in Jesus everything you need. And find in him the power to love God and to love others. If the band could come up as we conclude in transition. Let me just encourage you right now to Take a minute before the Lord, before we transition to communion. And just look at whatever that thing might be in your own life that's causing you anxiety. Or that thing in your life, maybe you're focused on yourself. Maybe it's creating doubt. Or maybe there's self-sufficiency and pride. And people have helped point that out to you. Let me just encourage you to do what I think the Lord taught Moses to do here. To give it to him to ask him for forgiveness, and to set your eyes on him, the one who's loved you and given his life for you and will be there for you. To say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We'll take a minute to do that, and then Toby will come up and transition us to communion.